you are at the bar, um, the intersection of law, policy, and culture. Uh, my co-host Jennifer Becerras is not able to join us for this discussion, but she will be back for our next one. Um, as everyone knows, there are a lot of cases to discuss coming out of this Supreme Court term, um, but I have some great guests to kick off some of those discussions. So um, we have with us, um, we have Nicole Garnett, Professor of Law at Notre Dame. Um, she's also the acting faculty director of the Religious, Religious Liberty Clinic, uh, which filed a brief in the case that we're going to be talking about. Um, and then we have Ginny Gentiles, our own IWF Ginny Gentiles. Um, she is the director of IWF's Education Freedom Center. She's got a ton of experience in exactly what we're going to be talking about from the policy perspective, which is school choice. Um, so just to, to kick it off here, there is this major case, this term, Carson v. Macon. Um, and I'm going to kick it over to Nicole to, to tell us some of the basics of these, this case, um, some of the legal principles involved, and then we'll, we'll uh, ask Jenny what the actual on-the-ground implication of this case and this ruling is going to have um, for families in, in America looking for religious school options for their kids. Great. So Carson um, is a, a, it was a First Amendment free exercise challenge uh, to the uh, Maine program that was basically a voucher program for students in rural school districts. Maine has, since the 1870s, allowed school districts uh, the option if they choose to give the they they don't have a, a high school they say you can you can just give the kids in your in your district um, the money that you would otherwise spend on them to attend a, the school of their choice public or private anywhere actually anywhere in the world um, and until 1980 that program included um, religious schools in 1980 Maine decided that that was uh, that it was unconstitutional to allow kids to choose to go to religious schools because of the establishment clause. Um, so since 1980, Maine has excluded religious schools from the range of options available to these kids in this, uh, they're called, it's commonly called tuitioning, so these tuitioned kids. So um, when the case came to the court, uh, it's been challenged many times, I'll talk, I can talk about that a little bit, including by me in 1996, so I'm very like, this case is very important to me, I would think I might have been the first person to ever challenge this program, but came to the court it was a, a first a, a free exercise i mean free exercise challenge to a program that says to kids in maine here's about i don't know ten thousand dollars you can go anywhere in the world as long as it's not a religious school um, and the supreme court said that the exclusion of religious schools from maine's um tuitioning program violated the free exercise clause because it was religious discrimination um it took a long time to get there i might want to back up to 1980, when Maine makes this decision to exclude religious schools from the program on establishment clause grounds, um, at that time, you know, it wasn't a crazy thing. It wasn't a crazy conclusion that that the establishment clause might prohibit this. Um, there were lots of cases in the 70s that invalidated aid to kids attending um, private and faith-based schools on establishment clause grounds, and they were kind of everywhere. Like you, so there were hilarious cases. Like you could give kids books but not maps. Um, you could give, so Daniel Patrick Moynihan after that case famously said, what about an atlas? Um, you could give kids a ride to, to school, but not a ride to a, um, not a ride to field trips. Um, you could have tuition, you could have tutoring in buses in the parking lot of religious schools, but not in the school buildings. Like these cases were just crazy. So, um, you know, 1980, maybe it was not totally crazy to exclude religious schools. There's a whole bunch of law that starts developing. The Supreme Court in 1980 starts really embracing the principle um, that it relied on in Carson, which is basically that 
what the First Amendment requires was the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause is government neutrality toward religion. So a program that favors religious schools would be unconstitutional on Establishment Clause grounds, but a program that disfavors religious schools, like the main program that was invalidated in Carson, is, is, um, is unconstitutional for free exercise, on free exercise grounds. So a really important case comes around um, 2002, 20 years ago, uh, in Zelman versus Simmons Harris, where the Supreme Court upheld um, a, a voucher program for poor kids in Cleveland that allowed them to attend um, a private school. 96% of them chose to attend a religious school. And the, and the Supreme Court says in a 5-4 decision in this case called Zelman, that doesn't violate the Establishment Clause because really two things. The parent is making the decision where the kid goes. And the second thing is the program is religion neutral. No one's telling anyone they have to go to religious schools. The kids are just taking their money and choosing to go to religious schools. So, so after Zellman, um, it's clear that Maine doesn't have its its establishment clause argument is wrong. So it could include religious schools if it wanted to. After Zellman, for the last twenty years, Maine has just maintained it doesn't want to. But we we don't want to pay for kids to go to religious schools. We know we could if we wanted to, but we don't want to. We want our we want to um, only pay for secular education. So. That, that's kind of where Maine's program has been for the last 20 years. And then in, over the last five years, there have been three really important cases that made it this argument untenable uh, that we could, we just want to discriminate if we want to. Um, the first is a case called Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. This case involves um, uh, a program, a Missouri program that uh, provided recycled tires for playground resurfacing. Um, Trinity Lutheran Preschool wanted some tires and Missouri said, I'm sorry, you were really an FD preschool, but I can't give you the tires because you're religious. Our state constitution prohibits us from giving aid to religious schools, so we can't, you can't have tires. Um, this gets challenged on free exercise grounds and the Supreme Court says that it violates the free exercise clause to tell Trinity Lutheran that they can't have the tires because they're religious. That's just religious discrimination. Um, so that's the first step. The second step is a case called Espinoza versus Montana. It's just two years ago. Um, Montana had a really small school choice program um, and it included religious schools. Montana Supreme Court invalidated the program on state constitutional grounds. And th their argument was we have to because it includes religious schools and our constitution prohibits public funds from going to religious schools even indirectly through a tax credit program. Um, the Supreme Court again invalidates that program on free exercise grounds and says um, that that is religious discrimination. You can't just decide to invalidate a program because it includes religious schools. That's unconstitutional religious discrimination. So th that's where we, we are two years ago. There's yet another challenge to the Carson, to the main program pending in the First Circuit. I think it's this is the eighth challenge. As I mentioned, I, I think I filed the first. Um, to this program and um, the First Circuit uphold, even after Espinoza seems to make pretty clear what's going on in Maine is unconstitutional, the First Circuit upholds the program um, within a couple months of Espinoza. Uh, interestingly for court watchers, um, one little fun fact about the First Circuit's uh, opinion in Espinoza is that Justice Souter was sitting by designation on the First Circuit when they upheld the program. Um, yeah, I was like, that guy's still around. Anyway, just so they they hold in um, in the in the First Circuit that this is okay discrimination because Maine isn't discriminating against the the schools because they're religious. They're discriminating against them because they do religious things. Um, sometimes it's called the status use distinction. 
kind of was a question left open in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza. So Maine uh, wins in the First Circuit because the reasoning being that the, that this is not, we're not discriminating against institutions because of their religious character. We just don't want to pay for religious instruction. That's okay. Um, that's where we were. We get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says a, a couple of things. Um, the main, the most important thing is it says there's no such thing as a status use distinction. It doesn't matter what your motivation for not paying for these kids to go to these religious schools if they choose to do so. Um, it's still religious discrimination. Um, I think that's really an important, um, probably the most important part of the of the Carson case. Um, I, I, we filed a brief in the Religious Liberty Clinic at Notre Dame, filed a brief representing Catholic, Muslim, and Jewish schools. And, and really, um, our whole point of the brief was to tell the story from these three faith traditions about why there was no difference between being religious and doing religious things. To be a Catholic school is, is to infuse the day with Catholicism. You know, my kids go to Catholic school. I think the entire second grade curriculum is first communion preparation. Math is first communion prep. It's like, so there, and the same is true in different ways for Muslim and Jewish schools. So there isn't, it doesn't make any sense to tell a Muslim school, you can participate in this program, but you can't teach Islam is to tell the Muslim school, you can participate in this program, but you can't be Muslim. Um, so that's really what the Supreme Court says. It says there is no, there's no, there's no defensible justification for excluding um, religious schools uh, and your desire to not pay for religious instruction is not defense is not a defensible constitutional justification. Um, the court reiterates, and I think that Jenny will probably talk about this. You don't. We're not telling you you have to set up a school choice program. We're just telling you that if you do, you can't exclude religious schools from the range of options available to parents. Um, so that's the main important thing. I mean, the other thing I think that maybe is really important about Carson um, legally is there had been this argument that had been floating around for a number of years, even after after um, after Zellman, that there's a quote unquote play in the joints between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. So like the states could be more secular, have more separation, church state separation than they were required to by the establishment clause. Um, you know, this is sort of this idea that it's a kind of strange idea that there's a space in the First Amendment that allows religious discrimination. It's the space that exists between the protections of the Free Exercise Clause and the restrictions of the Establishment Clause. And I think it's fair to say that the court closes that space and says, no, there's no space for religious discrimination. It's a strange argument. It always has been to me, and we don't generally say, ah, let's just give the states a little bit of room to discriminate. It can just be a little more, you know, racist than the Equal Protection Clause allows. We don't, we don't do that, and so I never understood why religion would be any different than other kinds of discrimination. And now it's clear that it's not. So it's a great victory for religious liberty. Um, it's, I think, the it's the culmination of um, decades, if not over a hundred years, of battles for the fair treatment of religious schools. I mean, the Catholic Church has been arguing for the principle articulated in Carson since at least the 1850s, probably before. So I, I think it's um, it's it's a great victory for religious liberty. It's a great victory for school choice, um, and it, and it really is like that uh, the culmination of doctrinal and development and fights for religious liberty have been going on a really long time. So that's there's a lot to celebrate with Carson. Yeah, on that note, I want to bring Ginny in. Um, Ginny, what is the actual practical effect um, of this? Because this is this is a program from the, the 1870s. Uh, this is a very old program, but this 
kind of uh, discrimination against religious schools has been in place now uh, since the 80s, the early 80s. So we're, we're talking 40, 40 plus years. Um, one, you know, how do you see this changing the landscape on the ground? Um, and, and two, what does this mean for school choice beyond these older tuitioning programs? Right. And, and so let's be clear that Maine is one of two town tuitioning programs that, that were established back in the 1800s, as Nicole mentioned. And so there's Maine and Vermont have these programs that probably don't view themselves as school choice programs. The parents participating probably don't view themselves as school choice advocates. Um, and the school choice community has kind of had kind of a... Um, arm's length relationship in some ways um, with those programs because they really are um, different. As Nicole described, uh, uh, some of these towns in these rural areas in Maine just don't support uh, secondary schools. They don't have high schools. And so the program allows the, the, the parent to choose another school even outside the country, I, that was an interesting point. But elsewhere in Maine, public or private, out state, out of state, even out of the out of the country. So town tuition's a little different. It's um, something that's been around um, for a while. Both Maine and Vermont have had this restriction, um, at least recently, uh, in recent decades, that only non-religious um, schools can participate. Um, there are plenty of other school choice programs in uh, in the states. In fact, um, 31 states plus D.C. have um, private school choice programs, and that includes um, the older voucher programs um, and tax credit scholarship programs, and then these newer education savings accounts programs, and, and those total up to about 65 um, different programs, including the two um, town tuitioning programs. Um, most of those programs are not uh, limiting um, participants to uh, non-religious. Well, those those programs don't really don't don't limit um, uh, the participation to non non-religious um, schools. But they are only in 31 states. You don't see a program in a state like Michigan, which has had a very strong Blaine Amendment and a very strong bias against any sort of um, transfer of, of, of funds on the part of parents um, to a private um, to a private school. And, and so what the school choice community is very hopeful about is that, yes, we've got programs in 31 states, we've got 65 programs, um, and now Maine families can, can choose um, from from um, religious schools as well. But what we're looking forward to is the expansion into additional states. The Supreme Court has made it clear. If the state establishes a, um, a private school tuition program, like these town tuition programs, like these school choice programs that I've mentioned, they must make them available um, to families um, who want to send their children to private religious schools. So that, that the option is expanded to the parents in Maine, and um, it's codified and safe for the existing programs and the opportunities abound to expand to these other states that have um, used this as an excuse to not introduce a, a program. Um, I did want to mention that um, in addition to the Catholic schools, Muslim schools, Jewish schools that Nicole mentioned, there are a wide variety of, of faith-based schools in, in the country. In fact, two-thirds of the 30,000 private schools that exist in the U.S. are, are faith-based, um, many of which now aren't Catholic. It used to be that Catholic was kind of your, your primary choice. There's been a, a, a surge of um, 
uh, a surge in other types of, of faith-based schools and, um, and a real growth in other types of faith-based schools. Um, and so um, we definitely have seen parents expressing a real concern about what's being taught in public education. Um, in the place of religion in public schools, we're seeing radical ideologies being taught and indoctrinated and preached to their children. And many parents are looking for alternatives and looking to those faith-based schools, um, but many parents can't afford them. So the fact that these programs are going to be able to exist for, for them and expand and grow to other states is really exciting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and the, um, the Blaine Amendment uh, sort of restriction on school choice, it has been an argument, as you say, um, not just in Michigan, but in, in other country, um, other states in the country. Uh, and, and of course, IJ and other groups have, have pushed back on the idea that these are actually a restriction or, or have pushed back against the idea that the Blaine Amendments are constitutional at all. Um, but this, this definitely should help uh, against that argument. Nicole, I wanted to ask you something about that, that, um, you know, use status distinction that you were talking about. Um, at what point is, um, Ginny, if you could actually uh, mute, because I can now hear that the guy was cutting down a tree near in Ginny's house. Um, but so you said this use status distinction is is um, now dead and buried. Uh, what about restrictions that contradict with the faith? Because the way you talked about it, for example, you said that, um, you know, you, you can't ask a Muslim school you can't say, oh, well, you can participate in this program, but you have to stop being Muslim to do it. I mean, it seems to me that that's, there's, <coughs> excuse me, a, a quite broad category um, of ways that that could happen, right? One would be the most blatant way to say, like, you can't do Islamic instruction um, with this money that we're talking about. But what about putting restrictions on a government program that, for example, require um, a view of of human sexuality or of of uh, male and female that is completely incompatible with the faiths of religion. But at some point, there has to be like uh, a secular reason kind of um, backstop here. So, what? Where in that spectrum? Where do you see the the law going in terms of what counts as excluding a religious participant from a program? Yeah, that's a great question. So there there's there are questions left open. Um, in um, Carson, and I think um, this is a very important one. So the, the Carson makes clear that you cannot say, you can't condition participation on secularization. So you can't say you must cease to be Muslim or you, you, can, you can stay Muslim or you can join the program. That's, that's clearly unconstitutional, but that doesn't say what other conditions might be attached. Now, I do think it's really important to point out um, that in the in the 31 states that Jenny uh, mentions, these kinds of restrictions that really threaten the religious identity and the autonomy of, um, of faith-based schools are are really non-existent, with the exception of Maine, which immediately after Carson uh, slapped a bunch of non-discrimination requirements on schools that included LGBT status, leading some of the schools, including actually the school that the little that the plaintiff wished to attend, to say they would not participate in the program. Um, and, and Maryland, which does have an anti-discrimination provision, but the rest of them have been quite protective of religious freedom and and, and the autonomy of the schools, and that's good. So there's there's not yet a huge threat out lurking out there about you know the line that you're asking, um, and but you know the short answer is we don't know yet. 
So, because it, it turns on, you know, what we call the unconstitutional conditions doctrine. So, to what extent can the state force you to waive your constitutional rights as a as a condition of getting a public benefit? It's clear after Carson that it can't it can't force you to secularize. It can't make you go that far. But you're right. Like, what about hiring? Like, for example, what about hiring teachers? So, what about the ministerial exception, which the Supreme Court has made clear includes religious teacher like gives religious schools the right to hire their own teachers that support the religious mission of the school that's quite clearly established constitutional right what if the state says you have to waive the ministerial exception um what if the state requires you to teach gender ideology or human sexuality uh i don't know science and say what if the state requires you to deny that creationism is even a possibility like that would be curricular requirements. Um, you know, then another set of requirements might be non-discrimination in student admissions. So to what extent, I think you asked the question, right, which is to what extent do these things sort of become tantamount to telling you to stop being Catholic, Muslim, evangelical, Hindu, whatever. Um, I think that's probably the question the Supreme Court will eventually have to tackle. And I think we might see there's, it's not going to be a blanket, you can't, have regulatory requirements, but some will be off the table. For example, I hope the ministerial exception, I hope that the ministerial exception is so important. Hiring your teachers that support the religion mission of your school, to me, is such a critical thing. Because if you hire teachers who don't, then you cease to be the thing that you're trying to be. Because the people that are trying to inculcate the values that the parents are choosing don't buy them. It may even be hostile to them in the classroom. So I, I think that I think that it's a great question. We don't know the answer to that question. Um, it's something we should be worried about. Um, and I think, but mostly it's a political fight and not a legal fight, uh, because mostly these programs have been pretty protective. Um, Janine, could you could you speak a little bit to you know why parents might choose um, a religious option in in terms of because. We talk about school choice, right? Um, but obviously, if you're choosing between, let's say, um, schools of different sort of organizational types, so we have we have a um, you know a fully public school, a traditional public school, a public charter school with certain restrictions, and you have you know private schools of different stripes, some of them secular, some of them attached to a faith, right? Um, you know, where's the choice in choice? I guess is the question I'm asking. What's the importance to parents of having totally different um, curriculum, values, all the things that Nicole was pointing to. I know IWF, we filed a, a um, amicus brief in this case and highlighting the importance of single-sex education and single-sex religious education and highlighting the benefits of single-sex religious education for girls in particular. Um, but but why, might, why might a parent choose um, an option that has this kind of, of religious uh, attachment or, or religious values? How, how is that important in the landscape of school choice? Well, I'd say one thing that um, probably doesn't get a lot of attention or enough attention in our um, current debates around um, public education, which seem to be very centered on um, culture war type issues, is the utter lack of discipline right now in, in public schools. Um, and parents know that that's not the way that uh, schools were when they, they were growing up. They know that there was discipline in place and that there was structure in place and that um, students were taught and expected to respect um, teachers and principals, and they know now, particularly post-COVID, as uh, students have returned back into chaotic classrooms, um, 
and with lagging social skills and um, missing <laughs> discipline um, capacity um, that, that these public schools are allowing the chaos to reign and they don't want that for their kids. So something that really appeals to parents right now as far as looking to alternatives to the traditional public schools, particularly in this era, is um, a, a faith-based school often has uh, elements of, of discipline and character and expectations um, that students will be respectful of each other, that they'll be respectful of, of their teachers and, um, and aspects of, of uh, faith, like kindness, gentleness, self-control are actually built into the report card. My children currently attend a Missouri Synod Lutheran school and that literally, <laughs> those uh, fruits of the spirit are part of, of their, their report card. And so I know that my fifth grader was not being respectful to her peers and to her teacher this past year. Um, and I love that transparency. I love that accountability. And I want that instruction and expectation for her. Um, and I know that she wouldn't have gotten that in the public um, classroom. So absolutely discipline and character and, and in a meaningful way that aligns with um, uh, uh, families' values um, is uh, those are really important reasons for choosing choosing alternatives. Um, uh, of course, the religious instruction is is part of it. Um, a number of faith based schools probably don't spend the entire second grade <laughs> on communion prep. That might be a uniquely Catholic thing, um, but you know. I love that my kids go to, to weekly chapel and I can pop in on, on Wednesday mornings and, and attend that um, as, as well. So the elements of, of faith instruction um, and then um, the academic instruction actually um, time and again um, has, been, has been showed to, to be a real priority for, for private schools. And they showed that in such a clear way um, during the COVID era by opening their doors. Public schools refused to open in my area and many of the areas of, of the country, absolutely refused. And private schools absolutely um, made it a priority to ensure that their doors were open, that their children were welcome in the classroom and that they were um, on track for um, learning what um, what they're expected to learn in, in each grade rather than languishing for two years, which happened in the public school. And, and that's why you're seeing um, a, a huge, um, huge growth in support for school choice. Uh, the COVID era showed that um, there was 64% for, for school choice in, in one particular type of poll in um, 2020, and that soared to 74% support um, for, for, for school choice by the next year, by 2021. Those numbers are continuing to hold steady, um, even as schools open back up. And uh, the demand for school choice was so strong in 2021 that legislatures across the country expanded programs and introduced new programs, exciting new programs like education savings account. And then that has spilled into 2022 with an expansion of the Arizona um, existing education savings account to now be a universal uh, program. Governor Doug Ducey made it clear in his state of the state, I'm prioritizing school choice, parents need options, send me a bill. They did. And now over a million students in Arizona have the option to um, participate in the education savings account, which gives parents this kind of freedom that we're talking about. Um, finally, before we we wrap up uh, this, this discussion here, Nicole, I wanted to ask you about the implications. I mean, we mentioned charter schools earlier. I mean, what are the implications for charter schools, which are, um, I'll just define that up front, charters are public schools in the sense that they are um, getting like, they, they get far more usually money than than in a um, 
in a, a uh, either voucher program, tax credit program, education savings account program. Um, they're usually getting, they're supposed to get uh, equal funding with public schools, but they, they are privately run. So the state is not operating charter schools. Um, does this decision perhaps open up the possibility for more charter schools to partner with private organizations that may or may not be religious? Because, I mean, this seems to say that that a charter school law can't set tell a charter school, oh, you can partner with X organization um, because they're secular, but you can't partner with Y organization because they're religious. Right. Before I say that, I do want to make clear that they do learn more than just First Communion at St. Joseph Grade School. But um, that I meant to say that in many religious schools, religion is a part of the curriculum, even and not just a class on Sunday or something. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a great question. I think there are two really huge possible implications for uh, Carson. The first is I think it actually just I'll get to the charter school thing in a second. It, it actually probably makes unconstitutional hundreds hundreds of programs that condition the participation of religious providers in providing some service, maybe it's Head Start or job training or I don't know, homelessness people, uh, helping homeless people on secularization. That's, they're all over the place. These restrictions are everywhere. These programs are all up for grabs now and people are probably busily assembling lists of unconstitutional programs. The second and, and I think longer term question is this charter school question, because as you say, charter schools are called public schools by state law, but they're privately operated and they don't run like district public schools. They're, so the question really is, are they government schools, which in which case they must be secular or are they private schools, in which case they can be religious? Every charter law says they're public and every charter law says they must be secular. And most charter laws, as you point out, say that not only must they be secular, but that religious organizations can't run them, even if they're secular. Um, that's just straight up status distinction, uh, discrimination, by the way. But um, so that that question, it really turns on when the chief justice in Carson says, we're not telling you have to have a program of private school choice. We're just saying if you do, you can't exclude religious schools. So the, the charter school question is, is a charter school program a program of private school choice, in which case you may not exclude religious providers or religious schools, or is it? A, are they really what they say they are, which is public schools? And, and by that, I mean, are they government so controlled by the government? This is the state action doctrine. It's a very complicated doctrine, but I don't even no, no one really knows what it means. But the basic question is, are they so controlled by the government that the action of the charter school is attributable to the government? Is it the government school or is it a private school? I think the best case is in most states that it's a private school. Um, and actually, the circuits are divided about this. So Fourth Circuit just held that North Carolina charter schools were public schools. They were not. They were state actors. They were controlled enough by the government as to be state actors and therefore were subject to constitutional limitations. That case actually involved whether you could make girls wear skirts in a charter, a classical charter school in the fourth. Circuit said that was unconstitutional to make girls wear skirts um, in a classical charter school. The Ninth Circuit has said the opposite. Um, so I do think it's there will be litigation on charter schools. I think that it's not I, I don't as much as I've written about it. And I think I'm on the go religious charter school side. I think there's some significant legal developments and some litigation um, that will have to happen before we get there. 
Well, on, on that note, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Nicole Garnett, Jenny Gentiles, um, thank you for this discussion on, on school choice, on, on the Carson case. Um, we are going to continue to pick our way through this very um, consequential Supreme Court term. I know everybody is focused on Dobbs, but there were a ton of really important cases in this term. So um, here at At The Bar, Jennifer and I are going to continue to bring on uh, some of the, the sharpest minds to, to discuss and pick apart the, the consequences of all of those cases. And just to remind you, At The Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's also available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. You can listen to it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and anywhere that you get your podcasts. We hope you will join us for continuing these kinds of conversations at the intersection of law, policy, and culture here at The Bar. Until then, we'll see you next time.